There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. From Backpage, I'm Neil White, and this is Between the Lines, a podcast that tells the stories behind great sports writing. You know, I've written 21 cover stories for Sports Illustrated, I think. From the moment this one came out, it made a splash like none other I've written. You know, I think people were mostly outraged. The cover story that got Ben Reiter into trouble was published on the eve of the 2014 Major League Baseball season. The image facing out in the newsstands of America was of George Springer in mid-swing. Springer had only just emerged as a beacon of light in the darkness that was the Houston Astros three years ago. That they were the worst team in baseball was not up for debate. Many had them as the worst team in the history of baseball. Yet here was Springer on the cover of Sports Illustrated, next to the words, your 2017 World Series champs. Some prediction. Since Writer's Peace was published in 2014, the Astros made the playoffs in 2015, and this autumn in 2017, guess what? They became your World Series champs, defeating the Los Angeles Dodgers in the final game of seven. And George Springer? World Series MVP, with a record equaling five home runs. At the core of Writer's story is his reporting of the days leading up to the 2014 draft, when Houston had the first pick in the first round for the third successive year. As you'll hear, that in itself, no guarantee of success. But first, before we try to unravel one of the most extraordinary stories we'll feature this season, some of you listening, maybe particularly in the UK and Ireland, might not be huge baseball fans. Truth be told, neither am I. But this is much more than a baseball story. It's something the man who wrote it talked to me about. Uh, I, was just, I really do believe that this story um, is one that breaks through the boundaries of baseball or any sport, really. And I, I think the Astros have kind of positioned themselves as a model for decision-making in many industries in the modern world. You know, we've kind of seen the pitfalls of rel- over-reliance on big data in recent years. And I think the Astros have shown that, that there's always going to be a place for human judgment and experience and instinct, and that big data is a useful tool as long as humans remain in charge. If you want to read Writer's original piece and some great follow-up material around the Astros World Series win, you'll find the links on our blog at backpagepress.co.uk. It really is a remarkable story. I'm going to presume, Ben, that you are speaking to me today from your private island that you were able to buy with your winnings. <laughs> I wish, I wish. I wish I had uh, actually gone to Vegas and put a nickel on this prediction. I could have probably gotten pretty good odds back in 2014, uh, but I didn't, not because I didn't believe in it, just because, I don't know, I guess the thought didn't occur to me. Well, you state your reputation on it and your byline, so that counts for something. <laughs> That's right. Um, just before we dig into the piece uh, and all the associated sort of follow-up stuff that you've been doing since then, I wanted to ask you where you were watching Game 7. I was watching Game 7 from the press box in Dodger Stadium. Uh, so I was there. I was there for the whole World Series. I was there for the series before that as well when the Astros played the Yankees. And a lot of people have been asking me if my heart was racing, especially as things got tense towards the end. 
And I can honestly say it really wasn't. You know, I was kind of zen about the whole thing. I've been doing this a while. I know that my feelings have no impact on whatever happens down on the field. Uh, I figured whatever happened uh, would have been a good result. One thought did occur to me as the game neared its conclusion around the seventh inning when it seemed like the Astros were going to coast into this thing. I thought if they somehow blow it now, then maybe I'll be in trouble and Sports Illustrated will be in trouble too. Like I know that everybody, including myself, uh, is extremely excited that this prediction actually came true. Um, but when you kind of step back a little bit, winning the World Series, you know, winning this Game 7 would have been kind of a coin flip outcome. Like I think what the, the important part is that the process was right. Even the fact that the worst team anybody had ever seen virtually back in 2014 had gotten to a point where they were so competitive that they could have even threatened to make the World Series was, I thought, some validation of the big idea. That's kind of the point that you're at. You know, when, once they get to that stage, then it's kind of like you, you've already nailed it. Right. And I know that the world doesn't see it that way. Like We're a very outcomes-focused world for some good reason, as opposed to process-focused. Although this prediction was definitely getting some attention even when they first made the playoffs this year and even before that. Um, but I, I do think that the process was shown to be correct, even had they lost that last game to the Dodgers. And, you know, both general managers, the front offices were down on the field before the game. They were saying all of this comes down to essentially a coin flip, which is what it was. When you have two of the best teams playing each other, either team could win on any given day. It doesn't really confirm or not confirm uh, that what they've been doing all along was the right thing. Um, but, you know, having said all that, I'm pretty glad the Astros won. And let's remember the cover of Sports Illustrated in 2014 did not say that Houston Astros will be a very, very good baseball team in 2017. <laughs> they said they were going to be your world champions and the world champions they were. Um, let's dig deep now into into the, the, the 2014 piece itself. First of all, at what point do you conceive of that and how does that access come about? Hmm. Probably started thinking about it as long as a year before it actually uh, reached print. And we were drawn to the story for two reasons. One is that the Astros were historically bad. Over a three-year stretch, they were the worst team baseball had seen in about half a century. So that kind of draws your attention. Like, What is going on down in Houston how is this team so bad? What is what is the what's going on here? The other factor is that the guys who are in the front office, who had joined the front office late in 2011, led by the general manager Jeff Luno, had very strong track records. They formerly worked in the scouting department of the St. Louis Cardinals, which is one of the great long-term organizations in U.S. sports. They're in it virtually every year, and they have been for the better part of a century, really. Uh, these guys had great success there. They go to Houston, and all of a sudden they're overseeing just an absolutely abominable team. So we wanted to know, what's the big idea here? What is going on? Probably took about a year of, you know, not consistent communication, but periodic communication. We want to do a story, but to do a story on a team this bad, it really have to be some sort of special access. took about a year to get them comfortable with the idea of letting me not only inside their offices, but inside their draft meetings, their draft rooms. That's the kind of opportunity that journalists, uh, I think probably in any country, in any sport, don't usually get. Who was your point of contact? Like, who, who was the one that you were really courting when it came to that? 
Well, it was Jeff Luno. He's the he's the guy who was going to make the call. Obviously, he would have to clear it with the owner of the team, Jim Crane, and probably the PR staff. But it was Jeff at the end of the day who was going to say, "Okay, we are going to let you come in here, and we're also going to let you talk with." You know, Sig Mydell, who is his data chief, and Mike Elias, who is his assistant GM, kind of open up the front office a little bit in a way that most teams would not and would not even want to. Certainly not at such a point of vulnerability. I mean, you can imagine you can imagine the team at the peak of its powers, perhaps wanting uh, Sports Illustrated to celebrate everything that was going right there. But they let you, you know, they gave that access pretty much at the bottom of the curve. Right. Well, I suspect it actually might have worked the other way there. Like, you, you, it's hard to overestimate how bad the publicity this team was getting at this point. Right. Like, they were a national laughing stock in the sporting world, at least. Alex Trebek was making fun of them on Jeopardy. They were getting 0.0 TV ratings in Houston. I mean, they had some motivation, at least, to turn the public narrative a bit. And to get the notion out there that look, we're not just losing in this way because we like it or because it's part of the pl- or well, it was part of the plan, but we're losing this in this way for a purpose. And perhaps Sports Illustrated will be able to open a window as to what the purpose is. And did you specifically ask for the access to censor around the draft? Yes. So the team in 2014 in June of 2014 had the. I believe it's the unprecedented privilege slash curse of picking first overall in the amateur draft for the third straight year. This was a big deal, and I thought that if they would allow me to kind of sit in on at least part of that process as they were deciding the player they're going to pick and then picking him, um, it could prove for a really good element of the story. And how many days, or what was this sort of stretch of time that you asked for, and, and how long did you end up going to Houston for? I was there for, I think, three days, you know, not counting, obviously, lots of telephone conversations surrounding this and other interviews. But I think I was on the ground in Houston in the office for certainly two full days and part of a third. So the draft is very much the centerpiece of the of the piece, although I absolutely love your way in um, around around Blackjack um, and 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 Sig and this kind of theme of hitting on a 16 when the when the deal is showing 17. It's it's really strong, you know, the way that it relates to the way that they have obviously built this thing. But it centers on, on the draft, and I, I kind of want to park there for a while. Like you said, this was the third year that Houston had the 1-1 pick. And, you know, when you, when you look back at 2012, 2013, 2014, from this vantage point, it, it hadn't always worked out, or it doesn't always work out for them. That situation, the 2012 one I think that you mentioned, is Carlos Correa. Now, who was Carlos Correa when you were writing in 2014 compared to who he is now? By 2014, people knew he was good. He was like a top 10, top 5 prospect in, the, in all of the minor leagues. By that point, he was a key part of the nucleus that, we would, uh, that, that was going to be going forward. Um, 2012, that was not the case. People, he was a fairly highly regarded prospect in the draft. But there was no one in baseball who had any idea that the Astros were going to pick for him first overall. In fact, most of the Astros scouting department did not know this was going to be the pick. Jeff Luna and a few of his top guys kind of made this pick, which was their first in secret. But by 2014, Correa was good. 
There were already some concerns, however, about the person they picked the next year, this pitcher, Mark Appel from Stanford, who was supposed to be a sure thing, but by 2014 had already started to look a bit shaky. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You arrive um, around the, the draft for the 2014 season and you set the scene quite brilliantly. The first meeting where they have, I think it's six players up on the board. That's right. And they're making their case for, for these six. I mean, what, what was that meeting like? That, I mean, I guess you've not been in a Major League Baseball meeting like that before. It must, as a fan even, let alone a journalist, that, that must be something else for you. No? It was, yeah, it was an hour and 40 minutes in which they were openly discussing, you know, these top six players they were considering making the first overall pick. I had certainly never been in a meeting like this before. I think there were about 40 members of their front office in there. You know, you had the scouts, you had the data guys, you had Nolan Ryan, an all-time great, Craig Biggio, a Hall of Famer, just all of the brain power and with all sorts of skills really collected in one room offering their honest, unvarnished assessments of these players. The area scout who is in charge of covering the area of the country in which each of these six lived, was the first to speak on their behalf, right? I mean, it's a big honor for an area scout to have discovered slash signed the number one overall pick in the country. So each of those scouts had spent the previous, you know, two, three plus years getting to know these players. Their opinions were a big reason as to why they're even being discussed in this room. So each of those guys kind of led the discussion as to why their player ought to be the one who the Astros picked. Now, I guess one thing I should say is that they considered these to be the six best amateur players in the country, right? So there were not that many negative comments about them. So it was more about which one of these six is going to be the greatest. And by the end of the day, it was pretty clear to me uh, that they were circling around Brady Aiken, who is a left-handed pitcher from San Diego. And that's when a whole different story starts. I mean, at the point when you're writing it, he's the one-one pick at, the, at that point when you follow your story, correct? That's right. And I had no reason, no date actually, I think even within the Astros, had any reason to believe that this would turn out in any other way than Brady Aiken signing with the Astros and becoming a great pitcher. They thought that this guy had a chance to be one of the greatest pitchers of all time. And it was a very risky pick in that only two high school pitchers had ever before been picked first overall. He was the third, and the reason for that is that so much can go wrong 
between when you're a 17 year old high school pitcher and when you're a major league pitcher, you can get hurt. You might not develop. It's the riskiest category of player there is. But I knew that the Astros picked Brady Aiken despite the risk because they thought that he had a chance to be an all time great. And it's kind of where the peg of here are your 2017 World Champions comes from, because I think at one point in the meeting, one of the front office staff say that this guy could be pitching Major League Baseball in 2017. Right. Yeah. I mean, you'll notice in the story that there's no proclamation as bold as the one on the cover. But no, you'll notice that the year 2017 does come up a few different times as uh, as one in which this thing might all start to come together. For perhaps some of the listeners to this podcast who don't follow uh, or haven't followed the Astro story so closely, what happens next? Well, it was a pretty shocking result. I mean, obviously, all players after the draft are subjected to physicals, medical exams. And they're usually routine, especially with young players. Usually nothing's wrong. The Astros seem to have discovered something that concerned them in Brady Aiken, specifically in his elbow. Now, it's never been formally reported or formally admitted what this was, but it has been widely known that he had an issue with his ulnar collateral ligament in his left elbow, which is the most important ligament for a pitcher. It's the ligament that is repaired in Tommy John surgery. Apparently, it was perhaps small or weak. So they get this result, and they immediately drop their offer, their contractual offer to Brady Aiken. This is very controversial. They're accused of you know, playing hardball with a teenager. How do they even know that something's going to happen with his elbow? Um, it's viewed as a very negative result. Ultimately, Aiken decides not to sign the lower offer. They become, I believe, the third team ever not to sign the number one overall pick in the draft. This is viewed as a huge black eye for the Astros organization. Another sign among a disbelieving public that these guys have no idea what they're doing, they're a laughing stock. But everybody overlooks one thing, which is that by not signing Brady Aiken this year, they, by rule, receive a compensatory pick the following year. And it's not just any pick. It's the number two overall pick in the draft. So essentially their decision was, do we sign a pitcher that we believe to be damaged goods, or do we not sign him and instead get the number of two pick in the draft next year, which should also be a star player, one who might not be damaged. Well, the upshot of the story is that 12 pitches into his next start at IMG Academy in Florida, where he went instead of going to the pros, Brady Aiken tears his elbow, has to undergo Tommy John surgery, and the Astros making the number two pick in the 2015 draft select Alex Bregman, who just a couple of years later uh, has a game-winning hit in the World Series. So that decision, despite being blasted by almost all quarters, worked out pretty well for the Astros. And although that story unfolded after your initial piece, it's completely tied to it. And if we're talking about a story of process over, um, you know, over appearances, then I don't think you could possibly hope for a better example. That's right. And look, this was a setback for the Astros themselves. It's not like they were pleased that this happened with Brady Aiken. But I guess their strength was that they stuck to the process. And the process in this case told them that no decision is final until you really have no more outs, right? Until there's no more angles on it. I think that many teams, not all teams, would have probably seen the medical exam of Brady Aiken and said, okay, you know what, we can deal with that. It's just not worth, you know, going through all this. We'll sign him anyway. 
but the Astro system told them that it was not. And, you know, as a result, they probably ended up with a player who is not just the best player so far in the 2015 draft, but probably the best player in the 2014 draft as well, and Alex Bregman. Have you felt sort of invested in, in this story since you wrote that piece? You know, have you followed it more closely than you would have otherwise? And have you kept in touch with those guys in the, in the front office at Houston? Probably more invested in this one. I mean, in part because, you know, I've written 21 cover stories for Sports Illustrated, I think. From the moment this one came out, it made a splash like none other I've written. You know, I think people were mostly outraged and disdainful that we would put this horrible, atrocious team on the cover of SI, which is usually reserved for, you know, teams that have actually accomplished something. And they also thought the prediction was simply preposterous, that we were just trying to stir conversation. So it was instantly, the prediction was instantly attached to me. At first, I was getting a lot of hate on Twitter and elsewhere. Then they actually jumped their own timeline by making the playoffs in 2015. So the narrative flipped a bit. It was kind of like, huh, maybe there's actually something to this. And ever since then, it's kind of followed me in 2017. And I have kept in touch with the people in the Astros front office in part because I've kept on writing about them, about what's happened since. But, you know, I did see Jeff Luno in spring training this year. And the first thing he said to me is, you know, it's 2017. This is our year. It's interesting as well, the names, the first names of the existing playing staff that you that you bring up. I mean, guys that, that became far more than they probably were in 2014. I think two of the first three players that you mention are George Springer and Jose Altuve. Kind of following the breadcrumbs back, I mean, I, I guess George Springer was a fairly known quantity. He broke through that season? Yes, he was. He was, you know, he was actually one of the few players that the new Astros leadership kept from the old regime. Uh, they essentially burned down the whole organization in order to rebuild it, but they kept a few key pieces, and George Springer was the most obvious one to keep in that he was a first-round draft pick, he was a top prospect, he you know, had all the tools, as they say in baseball. If you were going to keep anybody, it was George Springer. The other guys like Altuve were not such sure things. When you were making your year-long pitch for this piece, did it never occur to you to try and get access to the players? Were you always more interested in the decision-makers than the athletes? In this case, I was more interested in the decision-makers. You know, I certainly did speak with the players, like Springer, and you know, there's some quotes of them in the piece. But this is always kind of going to be a, a front-office type of piece because they're the decision-makers. They're the ones who are deciding to burn it down, to rebuild with a purity, as they like to call it, that had never before been attempted. And as it turned out, as I kind of did my reporting, I also started to feel as if they had happened upon a new sort of process for baseball, one that went beyond Moneyball. You know, we understand Moneyball as being a shift to modernity and that it was casting aside these silly observations of the scouts and, you know, kind of, human frailty and all this stuff, and focusing on the hard data, which could uncover truths and inefficiencies that humans couldn't. Well, it seems to me that the Astros were doing something new, which is that they were recognizing the value of human instinct and experience and coming up with a way to combine that and then often give it precedence over um, big data. Yeah, you make a brilliant point along just those lines when in amongst the kind of raw data, the numbers data, they're kind of compiling a human history of previous versions of these players, which I guess is exactly where those two kind of strands cross over. Right. I mean, it's not right to say that they rejected data, but they figured out how to quantify 
in many cases, human observations. For example, if you have a scout who has 99 times made a particular observation about a pitcher's curveball, they would regress the data and see, well, how do those other 99 times turn out when the scout made this observation? And can that help us understand the probability that it will turn out similarly on the 100th time? That was kind of an innovation, or it certainly was an innovation in baseball. And I think that they're recognizing that all this data, as wonderful as it is, is flawed and should not be the be-all and end-all as far as decision-making was their primary innovation. Kind of looking back from the perspective that you have now, it sounds as though you were fairly sold on this approach um, immediately, you know, in 2014. Can you remember how you were feeling on the way, on the way out of Houston, um, you know, when you were kind of getting ready to write and fire your piece? I can't. What was the pitch that you made to your editor? <laughs> well, the pitch was essentially the, what you see on the cover, right? Like an unprecedented, I forget exactly what the cover language is, something like, you know, a baseball's great experiment. Um, it's an unprecedented way of taking baseball into the future, something like that. But, I mean, look, these guys laid it out to me, and they had started to see some results as far as George Springer coming up. They weren't quite as bad as they had been in the past three years, although they were still very bad, don't get me wrong. But every single part of the plan they laid out, laid out to me made logical sense. You know, the reason why they had to get so bad was to get good as soon as possible. They weren't going to waste a dollar on something that might have allowed them to lose 97 games as opposed to 102 games in 2014, which nobody would really care about. All anybody would really care about is when they were winning in 2017. So every part of the plan made sense to me, and I could tell that this was not being cynically executed. This is not something they were doing just to save a dollar on behalf of a malicious owner, although clearly they were trying to be fiscally responsible. But it was being done genuinely because these very smart guys who had a smart track record thought this is how they were going to win. And I, I guess there's no better way to put it but to say that I was convinced. Thanks to Ben Reiter for agreeing to this interview. Keep up with Ben's writing for Sports Illustrated. Follow him on Twitter at Ben underscore Reiter. That's R-E-I-T-E-R. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. And if you've read a sports story that you think would make a good feature for the podcast, let us know on Twitter at Backpage Press or email us backpage at backpagepress.co.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.